Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asma sambhutata Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asma sambhutata Namo tassa bhagavato arahato asma sambhutata Buddham tamang sangang namasami So for the benefit of those who are not familiar with this little chanting, in the tradition that I come from, before giving a Dhamma talk, I often do this chanting, and it's a way to remind myself this is, this is not the same as hanging out on the street corner and just chit-chatting. And it's also a, um, an indication for everyone here also to remember that there can be a way when listening to reflections or um, inquiry where the mind opens and the body opens and the heart opens. And and so for oneself also, when you hear somebody about to give a talk like that, the, the invitation is to sit in a way that's upright and with dignity and relaxed and to let 90% of your attention be inward. So don't grab hold of what I'm saying. Keep 90% of your attention on how you're feeling and just have 10% of your attention listening to what you hear. And the reason why that is is because when your body is suffused with awareness, you totally know it when you hear something that resonates. You know, there's a sense of kind of an opening, a relaxing, uh, an aha. You know, the body responds. It breathes out. It, it, it sighs. It stretches. It, it opens. And so when you're very much attuned inwardly and you hear something that makes sense, you know it's right because your body is telling you that. And likewise, if you're attuned inwardly and you hear something that doesn't resonate, you know there's no need to believe it. In fact, the encouragement is not to believe a single thing that I say, but to really investigate or to look or to inquire. It gets a little bit tricky sometimes when the body says, you know, I don't like this, because that can be two things. That can be, this is not resonating with me. And so, you know, then if that's the case, then what's really important is just to leave it. But it can also be that there's something here that's touching a little bit close to the nerve. And it feels uncomfortable to, to go with that. And so the resistance can be a resistance that is inviting further exploration. And so to be able to discern inwardly between what is no long, what is not resonating and what is asking for further investigation takes some skill. And, you know, I would hope that that would be of interest to find out, you know, for oneself. Is how do I know this stuff doesn't fit for me? Or how do I know that it touches something that actually feels uncomfortable that is really important to look deeper? Because the stuff that doesn't resonate, there's no need in picking up that. There's no need in doing anything with that. Just leave it. But the stuff that feels uncomfortable, sometimes that is a a gateway into um, all kinds of interesting explorations. And interesting only because when we open up things that we don't feel very comfortable around, Sometimes we can find a way of relaxing into it or through it or with it 
that brings a kind of peace that we would not have imagined before we went through that exploration. And so this inquiry is a very useful one. But needs to be self-directed rather than somebody telling you that this is what you're supposed to be doing. Unless it's a person you have a lot of confidence in and you know that really what they're interested in is your own benefit, your welfare. So, um, you know, the Buddha's birthday. In the tradition that I come from, we celebrate the Buddha's birthday, his um, enlightenment, and his Parinibbana all on one day. So I don't know whether it's it's um, a particular economy of celebration or whether these things all happened on the same day or the scriptural references for it, but in the tradition that I come from, this is really a big holiday. And so, you know, I don't know that any of us were born into a Buddhist context where we were born with a sense of faith in the Buddha as a as a um, as a teacher. You know, for for myself, it came later. And, you know, I have my own personal relationship with the gratitude I feel for the openings and the learnings and the teachings that he made possible. But really, I don't resonate to celebrating the birthday of the Buddha, you know, because who was this bloke who lived 2,600 years ago? You know, I don't have that much connection with him as a, as a person. But what I really get excited by is the possibility of being awake. And that is, to me, the what his being born into this world brings, is the possibility of being awake. And I am not of the view that the only people who can be awake are people who are card-carrying Buddhists. I... I think awakening is something that is much, much, much bigger than any individual um, religious doctrine can lay claim to. And there's many different ways of waking up. And I know for myself the kind of joy that comes when there's a movement towards what is and a letting go of grasping or fighting or wanting it to be otherwise has been a source of tremendous joy in my life and a sense of um, ease and well-being and peace and contentment. You know, classically, when the, the Buddha was uh, experiencing his own life journey, You know, there's some things about his story which I think are worthwhile to reflect on because they might have some relevance in our own story. You know, he was born into um, a good family and had a lot of opportunities. And yet there was something that struck him about the limitations of all of that. And... You know, the classic story is, is is that he was he encountered the the signs of, of old age and sickness and death. And and I think it's not as if any of us can grow up immune from that, but I think there can be a time where it lands in a way where 
no matter how old we are, we wake up to the reality of it in a way that we hadn't before. And it's sobering to to know that however much power or wealth or good fortune or how well loved we are or how many friends we have or how how highly educated we are or how skillful we are, none of those things are in and of themselves going to counteract getting old, dealing with sickness, and none of them are going to prevent us from going through a gateway that all of us have to pass through, which is the gateway of death. So these are kind of universal experiences that are that are most people have. It's occasionally a person can live a very, very long life or a healthy life and then die without much sickness. But that is not very often. And then sometimes if that happens, it's tragic because they die early, they die young. Yeah. So when this person known as the Siddhartha Gautama saw this and realized that none of the wealth and the power and the prestige and the intelligence and the good fortune that he had was a could help him or could help anybody that he loved deal with any of these things. He thought, well, what else is there? You know, what else is there in this life? What are we doing here? Why do we live? Why do we, what is this for? And he saw somebody who was wearing robes and had a shaven head and his quest was enlightenment. So, you know, it's interesting wearing robes, especially in Colorado Springs. You know, because there's not a whole lot of people around here who wear robes. There's a few people who've got bald heads, but it's usually blokes. And it's usually um, to, to make a statement, not that they are have a religious affinity or they have an aspiration or a pilgrimage, but something altogether different than that. Sometimes they just like it because it's convenient. But one of the reasons why wearing robes is um, quite an interesting thing to do in our contemporary society is because it is a a sign that there are other alternatives. The choices that we live are not the only choices that there are. There are other ways of living this life. And each of us has to navigate our own particular feelings about how we feel being the flag. (laughs) And sometimes how nice it would be just to, you know, wear jeans and a t-shirt, you know. I saw... um, Somebody somebody had left a, a tattoo, one of those rub-on tattoos. And I thought, um, you know, the punks have been on my case for two and a half years now about they want to get me tattooed. <laughs> <laughs> and what I can relate to about that is, is, is that, you know, you like to see people look like you. It's comforting. You know, when people look like you or you can relate to something about them, it's easier to feel relaxed about your connection with them. You know? So I smiled when I saw this because it was right in front of the property here. And it wasn't just any old tattoo. It was a cross and skulls. wait and put it on at the right time. <laughs> put it on my forehead. <laughs> so 
So the Prince Siddhartha saw this renunciant and thought, wow, you know, there are alternatives in this life. And so he thought, what is that? What is beyond old age, sickness, and death? And how do I get there? You know, how do I do that? Where do I go? How do I get there? What does it look like? And so his quest was to leave what was familiar to him and to set on, on a journey to explore and try and find, you know, is there something that is beyond birth and death and sickness and all of that? Is there something that's more? And what is it? And what does it look like? And how do you get there? You know, so many of us, we might ask those questions, but we don't stay with it until we actually come to an answer. You know, I think those are probably pretty common questions. What else? Or what is the purpose of this life? And what else is there? You know, what are we doing this for? You know. And... The story goes is that there were some contemporary teachers there and at that time. And these were people who were masters of concentration. So rather than opening up the field of attention so that you're able to include everything, they focus and absorb attention into, the, into their object. And as a result of that experience, just sublime bliss. It's the, it's the most exalted form of happiness and bliss that you can experience in this human realm is when the mind unifies like that and goes into these deep states of concentration. But when he came out of them, he had hurting knees, he still missed his family, he had all the questions that he had been asking before. It didn't resolve any of the stuff that he was really interested in knowing. So it was like, you know, a holiday, and really peaceful and really pleasant. But none of these deep-seated questions were touched. And so he thought, this is not the answer. This is not it. You know. So when situations matured and ripened, and then he decided, okay, I've had enough. I've been working at this for six years, and it's like, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to break through, or I'll just, I just as soon die. And so he made this incredible resolve, you know. May my bones turn to dust and my blood dry up. I am not moving from my seat until I wake up. Now, I have seen or heard people think, you know, the Buddha did it, I can too. And in 24 hours, somebody scoops them up and takes them to a padded room. <laughs> because we don't have the kind of virtue to be able to make that resolve where you will stay with it like that until the mind opens up. So we can't just say, well, somebody else did it, I can do it too, because we might not have what it takes to do that. So we have to be a little bit discerning what our own capacity is when we hear things like that, that we don't just decide to do things that is beyond our level. But what happened for him was is that he did have the capacity. But what was also fascinating is, is, is that the intention to wake up gravitated towards him all of the forces that were interested to kind of knock him out of balance. Now, some people say that this was an external visitor. For me, I can relate to an internal experience of the kinds of things in my own heart and body and mind that knock me out of balance, you know. It's not like there's some being that would come, but it's like, you know, the fears that I have or the desires that I have or the confusions that I have. You know, when you become very clear and very resolved, usually what happens is there's a whole wave of doubt that you have to contend with. 
And so he also had a whole host of series of visitors. And, you know, the first one was desire. Now, I think it's very interesting. You know, what is it that we really deeply desire? And to look at this as a open question. You know, what do we deeply desire? What are we prepared to sell our grandmother for? You know, what are we prepared to, to sacrifice all kinds of things in order to have that? And I think it's different for different people. I don't think it all is the same. And so, you know, what's helpful is to remember, you know, the demographics. So this was a man, and he was in his 20s when he started, and the time that he was under the tree of the, of the Bodhi tree, he was in his 30s. And so, you know, the way desire um, configures or constellates for a young man might look different than it would for a woman. And, you know, his sexual orientation was is that he was interested in women. If, that's, if you're not heterosexual, your, your orientation is going to look different. So the demographics need to be kind of remembered that this was a man in his 20s who had that kind of orientation. And if that's not your orientation, the way you configure or the way things constantly are going to be different. But I also wonder whether sexual intimacy is the deepest desire for everyone or whether there are other things that other people long for. And I think, again, you know, it depends on where we are in our life as to what our deepest longings are. And so um, it's just a fascinating question, you know, what do we desire? And I would hope that asking that question gives us permission to explore in ourselves, you know, what is it that we really long for? You know, what do we really think is going to be the thing that's going to do it for us? You know, what does it look like? And how much do we invest in making that happen? And how disappointed do we feel when that's not there? And so this whole unfolding of the story then takes place. And, you know, the Buddha did not go into battle with this whole host of desire that were coming to tempt him. That's not what happened. What he did was he just said, I know you. I know you, I know you, I see you desire. And I don't need to engage in violence or fighting. I don't need to compete. I don't need to ignore. I just need to know you and stand my ground, hold my seat, stay present with knowing. So the next whole realm of temptation was the, was the realm of aversion, of not wanting to know. Now, I've lived in communities with women, and women certainly have no shortage of aversion, but the way we experience it is very different from the way men do. You know, the men would shout or holler or fight it out, and the women would do it very differently. You know, we would kind of poison each other's belonging. We would speak about each other in a way that undermined the person's sense of safety and being in the group. It was no less... Um, destructive. In fact, it might have been more destructive. But it expressed itself very differently. The way we did our anger was very different than the way the men did their anger. 
So, you know, and I can see for myself when there's something that I don't like, there's a tendency to move away from it, to separate out. Or if I really don't like it, there's a sense if I don't pay any attention to it, somehow it's just going to disappear. You know, the wanting to ignore. So all of these responses to unpleasant sensation or unpleasant circumstance or unpleasant ideas are things that need to be awakened to. We need to wake up to this is the way it is. And once again, you know, the Buddha did not engage in battle. He did not fight. He did not throw weapons or spears. He did not tackle. He did not disarm. He did not defend. He did not do any of the things that we normally do when we feel angry. And he didn't disappear. He didn't run. He didn't fight. And he didn't freeze. He stood his ground. And he just said, I know you anger. I know the mechanisms of aversion, how I experience it in my body, in my heart, in my mind, and I can be present to it. I don't need to be frightened of it. Now, I don't know your own personal circumstance, but for me, anger has been a huge project because I haven't had very good conditioning around it. And so I was of the kind that would stuff anger. You know, I would bottle it, I would stuff it, and then after so much, it would explode, and I had absolutely no clue whatsoever how I got from being completely stuffed to being completely volcanic. It was like a black box, you know. Other people explode, you know, the slightest hint of irritation or anger, and they just let it rip. And they dump, and they explode, and they rip people to shreds, and they do that. These are the two kind of classic poles on ways of relating to one thing. Neither of them are skillful. And so what the Buddha is saying is, is, is that there's another way. We don't need to stuff it and we don't need to dump it. What we need to do is to know it and to be present for it and to know it as it's arising in our bodies, our hearts, and our minds. So we're not engaging in activities that are based in it but we're also not disallowing it now for myself because my conditioning was the way that it was I needed all kinds of special practices in order to help me be able to do that because just to say be aware of anger was not possible the suppression mechanisms were so deeply um, embedded and so sophisticated that the suppression would happen before the awareness was aware that I knew I was suppressing. So I had to do special things to learn to give myself permission to tolerate the experience of anger so that I could somehow um, sidestep the suppressive mechanisms before they got so deeply entrenched that I had no awareness of what was happening. So... I have learned with anger that I needed to have a set of tools that were different tools than the tools that were offered in meditation. And part of self-awareness is is that we need to learn the conditioning that we have and develop skillful responses to that so that we can meet it where we're at and bring it into balance. The meditation instructions are no good if you've got no capacity to be aware of what's happening. I needed something to get me to the place where I could stay aware with what was happening. People who have the tendency to dump need to learn how to hold the energy and how to remember 
that it's actually quite harmful to, to, to let it dump like that. That it doesn't do you any good, and it doesn't do the person any good, it doesn't do the situation any good, and it doesn't do anybody around any good to just let anger run, rip, like that. So that takes another kind of learning to begin to get a framework of where are we, and how does this work, and how can we work with it in a way that is supportive. Not in a way that is judgmental, but in a way that is supportive and more conducive towards health. And certainly understanding how the mind and the breath work and understanding the mechanisms of the body and watching things arise and learning how to attend to that and learning how to put on brakes and how to diffuse and how to relax are all incredibly important steps in learning how to manage anger. Because all of them are needed in order to be able to to be present with anger when it's really strong. So, you know, it's not like... um, you know, meditation is very practical. It's not, at least in the tradition that I'm from, it's not very esoteric. It's like, we want to stop suffering. These are the steps that you need to do in order to get there. It's nothing mystical and it's not very religious. It's more like cooking or math or science or building. You know, to build something, you need to have the foundation first before you can put the roof on. You know? It's just the way it works. You can't put the roof on before you get the foundations built. So these are individual bits of what we can do to put the building together so that we can deal with the stuff that's arising in a way that is not so dismantling, that actually we are able to navigate our internal world and be present with it and and do it in a way that allows a sense of ease and well-being and a sense of confidence and a sense of, of feeling like, one is able to be comfortable with the whole sphere of what it is to be a human being. So desire for many is quite strong and quite a challenge and takes quite a learning. And anger also. And not just the aggressive forms of anger, but the subtle forms of, of pulling away from things which are irritating. You know, we don't like to feel irritated. And yet when we can meet it, and we can relax that mechanism, then our responses are often more congruent with our values. And the result is, is a much more sense of confidence and sense of peace and a sense of ease and well-being. I've had quite an interesting process with this hermitage because, you know, there's been so much love and care and effort gone into building it, making it so that I could live there. And then when I came back here and I couldn't move in because the new materials that they made it with were materials that were off-gassing stuff that I couldn't tolerate. And it, it wasn't aversion, it was grief. You know, it was like a heartache that so much effort went into something and I can't, I can't make use of it in the way that I had wanted to. And then the whole process of changing it out and negotiating and the mess and the chaos and packing up the closets and packing up the kitchen and living in a building site for, you know, all of that. And so, and so, you know, the 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 tendency is to is to move into the specific thing that is irritating rather than to look at the bigger picture, which is is that there's a whole group of people who are interested in 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 that in the health and the welfare of, of myself. And that the, the shifting of this out is coming about because of all of these different ingredients that are making it possible. 
And so if I can move from the specifics of I hate boxes to, oh, isn't it fabulous that I can actually change the chemical loading or pay attention to the care of the numbers of people who have helped shift it, then I can change my focus from something which is aggravating me to something where I can feel a sense of gladness and gratitude and an openness and and an ease and a relaxation. And so the boxes were still there, but they didn't go away until I just unpacked them today, you know, was the last box that was unpacked. But how I related to the boxes and the mess and the chaos was a way in which I would focus my attention. And I could notice that when my energy would get lower, it would tend to be in the habits that I was more familiar with. It would take more energy to steer it in the other ways. And if I was feeling more energized and I was feeling a little bit healthier, then it was easier to move towards the patterns of gratitude and appreciation and kindness in the bigger picture. And so when I was tired, I needed to be extra careful both how I paid attention as well as what I did when I made mistakes because I could spiral into something that would just wear me out even further. And so one can see that there's a cause and effect relationship between where you place your attention and what you're experiencing and how you're relating to that and what your feeling of sense of well-being is. So the Buddha, the night of his enlightenment, was having to contend with desire and having to contend with ill will. And then the last thing that he had to contend with was doubt. And I find that fascinating because I just never, ever, ever in my wildest dreams imagined that somebody like the Buddha would deal with doubt. You know? Just, I just would never have thought that. You know? And so the doubt that was posed to him is, well, who do you think you are to be free from suffering? You know? Who do you think you are to be enlightened? And in the people that I come contact with and the explorations that I've been through, it's not that often that that is my doubt. And it's not that often that that is the doubt of the people that I'm dealing with. You know, sometimes the doubts that people are dealing with are much more fundamental. Do I have a right to be here? Is it safe for me to exist? You know, where do I belong? Am I okay? Doubts like that. So whether one's doubt is whether one can be ultimately free from all forms and traces of suffering, or whether one's dealing with other fundamental doubts, I think the response is really very much the same. I know you. I see you. This is doubt. This is the way doubt is expressing itself. This is the way it's manifesting. This is what it looks like. This is what I am doubting. And when we see doubt as doubt... We don't have to engage in a battle with it. We don't have to make it go away. We don't have to change it into something that is confident. It can be there. It's allowed to be there. And so one of the blessings of this whole process of what happened for this person sitting under this tree that night was it opened up the world of what we experience as human beings and says, you have absolute permission to feel this. There is nothing in your experience that you have to get rid of. But what we need to learn to do is to come into another way of relating to it. Rather than taking it to be who I am, understand this is what I'm experiencing. And it's not just a question of semantics to go from this is what I'm experiencing to this is what I am and this is who I am. 
It's a shift in our relationship to what is. So one of the fundamental ways in which the Buddha cut across the stream of greed and hatred was because of a fundamental uprooting of ignorance. And that uprooting of ignorance came about because of a radical shift in his relationship with I am. Now, as human beings navigating this world, we have to get up and we need to deal with I am. I'm hungry, I'm tired, I need to dress, I need to use the toilet, I need to work, I need to make my bed, I need to wash the dishes. I am. And so in a contextual way, it serves as a way of languaging what's happening and how we're relating to it. But as an ultimate identity, it causes an incredible amount of confusion and suffering. Because when we look deeply, where do we locate this I am? Is it in our skin? Is it in our hairstyle? Is it in the clothes we wear? When the punks are here in force, I'd say it is in your tattoos. You know, is it in our culture? Is it in our belief? Is it in our orientation? Is it in our value system? Where is it? Where do you locate I am? So, I am is a composite of many, many, many different things that arises. And each thing arises dependent on its own conditions. And when those conditions all come together, we have a sense of I am. But you can watch how I am is different when I'm with Martinea and when I'm with Darcy and when I'm with Mark. You know, I don't know you that well. So the way I experience myself is different with you than it is with Martinea and with Darcy because I know them longer. Cindy too. Yeah. So who I am is partly arising by who I am relating to. And how I experience myself is dependent on what's present in the circumstance. There isn't anything that's fixed. It isn't a problem that it changes. But if I latch on to, well, I am the way I am when I'm with Martinea, then it's very confusing when I'm with Darcy or with Cindy. And then Mark comes, and I haven't met him, and I think, well, that's not the way I feel when I'm with Martinea. Because it's not Martinea, it's Mark. So when we know that the way we experience ourselves changes depending on the conditions, then as it changes, there's a sense of, well, this is the way it is. This is the way it is meant to be. It is meant to change because there isn't anything that is fixed and static and unchanging. And when we really understand that, really, 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 then that pulls out the kingpin that keeps the other things operating. Because desire and aversion are looping around I am. I want and I don't want. I want the things that make me feel good and I don't want the things that don't make me feel good. Because I have identified with what I'm experiencing. So when we take out the kingpin, the Wizard of Oz is revealed. It's not as if I evaporate. You know, I have a body. I need to eat. I need to take a shower. My clothes need washing. 
But when there's no ignorance about what's happening, then life can arise and cease as it does, and there's no tormenting oneself about it, or suffering around it, or wishing it were otherwise. So the real blessing of the Buddha's birth is the possibility of waking up. And this is something that is present in everyone. You know, it's not limited to Buddhists. It's not limited to people who have robes or bald heads. It is innate in what it is to be human, is that it's possible to wake up out of suffering. And so for me, the real joy of the Buddha's birthday is coming back into contact with the potential for waking up. And that that is something that each of us can live our lives in support of if it's something that we feel is worth Enough. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.